1 Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter 14 this morning. There's a Bible in the back of a pew nearby that you're welcome to use if you didn't bring one this morning. worthwhile to remember as we get started this morning that the way Christian truth is arranged in the epistles, in letters like the one we have this morning, are not determined by importance or primacy. They, uh, to illustrate this, Paul spends more time talking about spiritual gifts in this letter than he does about the resurrection. He devotes a long, albeit, but one chapter to the resurrection, which will start in a few weeks. But he's spent three full chapters hitting and hammering home this concept of spiritual gifts. The reason, of course, is because the church in Corinth needed the instruction. They were using the gifts in a way that was self-destructive, that misunderstood the gifts. He calls them, in the very first verse of chapter 12, ignorant of these gifts that they're constantly using and hold so highly. Um, that being said, it's also worth remembering that be behind the reality of the first audience that this letter was written to, that there really was a church in first century Corinth that was having these issues that the Apostle Paul wrote, there's also the broader reality that God is speaking present tense to us today. The Bible is the word of God, not only a record of what God has said, but a way that God speaks to us today. And so sometimes it's difficult to bridge those distances between unique misunderstandings, unique overemphasises, unique issues, and the broader, universal, greater church. To step out of the first century world in Corinth and into our world and actually connect the dots instead of just saying, if we were these types of people, we would have to worry about these types of things. One of the things that's helped me to do this over the years is recognizing that the majority of Corinthian issues or Ephesian issues or Israel issues, the majority of those issues are rooted in the human condition. They're rooted in who all of we are without exception, even if it looks different from one life to another. And so if you can get under the hood, if you can get under the surface, if you can broaden the scope, if you will, and see these as specific illustrations of consistent and general realities, then a lot of times that's where it becomes beneficial. So, with all that being said, Paul has been walking through the spiritual gifts, but instead of taking time to delineate and explain each and every gift, instead of taking time to um, write a manual for the gifts, he's actually just dealing with all of these related issues that inform how the um, gifts are supposed to be used. And so the, the focus today, the idea that he wants us to focus on is that when we worship God together, when we gather like we're doing this morning, <coughs> when we gather in home groups throughout the week, whenever we intentionally get together as the church, our worship should be intelligible to all who are involved. 
So, with that being said, let's go ahead and read the passage. We're going to pick up in verse 13 this morning. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but another person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brother, do not, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to the people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and speaks in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Father, I know for many of us here this morning, that last line, that those who come and join us uh, for the first time, the visitors, the outsiders, the non-Christians, that they would come and that they would encounter you here, that they would proclaim that God is truly among you, that, that's a desire that we have, Lord. And I pray uh, as well that you'd help us this morning to connect the dots between the issues in the church in Corinth and the issues in our own heart, knowing that you have given this word uh, divinely inspired for our instruction, uh, as your word says in 2 Timothy. We pray that you'd send your spirit to instruct us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is continuing a conversation here about two gifts in particular. And he's chosen these two um, for one reason, because these are the ones in the church of Corinth that are problematic. There's an undervaluing of the gift of prophecy, and there's an overvaluing of the gift of tongues. But he also uses them to illustrate how the rest of the gifts should be used. And the reason we know that is because he doesn't, in these chapters, just talk about these two gifts. He constantly adds all the other ones in the list, but when he wants to illustrate, he focuses on these two. Okay? So the principles involved in this passage answer the broad question of, when we come together and we are the body of Christ, as Paul says in chapter 12, when we come together and we use the gifts that God has given us, how should we use them? And what we see this morning, as I mentioned before, is that we need to use them in a way that is intelligible. And that can seem to us maybe somewhat self-evident. Especially if you come from a background where tongues is not a common expression of even your private Christian life, let alone the corporate gathering, uh, this, then this seems irrelevant. But there are places where I sense similar tendencies in today's world. What you have to do is stop and go, why was it that the church in Corinth valued tongues so greatly? And to be honest, the reason it was valued so greatly is because it was so foreign. 
right? It was the fact that what was happening there was somewhat inexplicable. It was somewhat different. It was mysterious and, mis, uh, and, and not understood, and that brought the value to the table. They saw speaking in tongues as being especially spiritual because it seemed especially unhuman, okay? Now, what Paul is expressing here is effectively that they're overvaluing this mysterious gift based on the character of God. What he points out here throughout this passage is that we know and serve a God who is self-revealing, a God who communicates, a God who desires to be understood. Now, that doesn't deny the place for mystery, okay? Recognizing that God is incomprehensible is different than saying that God is in... uh, Oh, I had this a second ago. Okay, recognizing that God is incomprehensible comes from the concept that God is transcendent. In other words, there's too much God to organize your ideas and explain and simply state in truth. However you describe God, you're never going to cover all the ground to who God is. But there's a tendency in our times to think that, that the unknown God should take precedence, that we shouldn't be so concerned about truth and what's visible, but it's what we can't see and what we can't know and what's mysterious, that's the most important aspect. But when we look at the Bible's continuous proclamation of who God is, it proclaims him to be a self-revealer. And so God opens the pages of scriptures. In the beginning was God or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water, and that's as far as we get before we encounter and God said, "Let there be light." When you look at Israel's history later on um, after he's created this nation, he points in the book of Isaiah to prophecy in particular, the fact that he sent people to speak on his behalf as being evidence that he alone is the true and living God. He says, all of these idols that you worship, do they speak and tell you what is to come? Am I alone the only one who's proclaimed the end from the beginning? The fact that God reveals and To be clear here, it's not just that God is active in life and then we have to interpret it. Consistently, what God does, I'll take um, the Exodus as an example in Israel's history. What God does is he does something and he says, now let me explain what I just did. And so he is the primary interpreter of his acts. Not only does he interpret them, but he proclaims what he's going to do beforehand. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. He does it and he says, now let me explain what I just did. Take the New Testament as an example. The Old Testament is full of prophecies of God saying, I'm going to take care of this problem. I'm going to meet the greatest human need, the big issue of sin. I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a Messiah. And then Jesus comes and he does everything he was proclaimed to do. And the rest of the New Testament says, now let's talk about what just happened. And so constantly, the authors of the New Testament epistles are saying, let me explain what exactly happened in the cross of Christ and how that connects with your life. God says he's going to do, God does, and then he explains what he did. Okay, and so there's not a tension here between the revelation of God and the mystery of God. 
They're two correlating components, but when you pit one against the other and say God can be easily understood, simply explained, and knowable because we have the Bible, you fall short of the reality. On the other hand, when you ignore what the Bible clearly teaches to embrace a mysterious and unknown God, uh, then you're missing out on the fact that God has revealed himself. And so here's, here's the thing. When they came in their church gatherings and used the gift of tongues, which just by form of summary, if you haven't been with us, is speaking, praying, giving thanks, even praising God and music in a tongue that you've never learned, in a language, whether earthly or not, uh, that you have not been taught. Uh, when they came together and when they did this, what they were valuing most was this experience as an encounter with the living God. What they were valuing most was this as an inexplainable, miraculous happening. And so with that in mind, notice what Paul says in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So what he says here is when the gift of tongues is in operation, it is at least in one sense bypassing your brain. And what he means by this is that you don't understand the language you're speaking in either. That doesn't deny the fact that the practice can be beneficial, but he says it's spiritually beneficial. Maybe the best illustration of this is in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us that we don't always know how to pray as we should. And he says, but the Spirit prays within us in groanings too deep for words. Now, I'm not sure that all Paul is talking about in Romans 8 in that passage is the gift of tongues. But it clearly is applicable. The recognition is here that we pray beyond our ability when we pray in tongues. We worship beyond our knowledge when we worship, and that is beneficial to the one who's using the gift of tongues. But it doesn't help you to know God better in your mind. Okay? And so what he's saying here is it's great and it's part of maturing as a Christian to use the gift of tongues if you have it. But that's not enough to grow as a Christian. And so what he says is, yes, I will pray in a tongue and my spirit will pray in a tongue. And he says, but I'll also pray with my mind. He says both are necessary. In other words, you can't just use the gift of tongues as your sole or primary way of growing in the Christian life. Here's how this connects with us this morning. The mysterious, the mystical, the miraculous, all of those things are a part of who God is and what he does, but they are not enough to know God. If we just took those acts of the living God in the Bible uninterpreted, there's no guarantee we would rightly understand what they were about. And when we put all the emphasis on God showing up and doing stuff, and we don't listen to his voice to explain what he's just done, then there's, there's a problem. We need the truth to mature. We need to know not just that God is, but who God is to grow as Christians. And so he says, yes, I'll pray in the spirit, but I'll also pray in the language that I know. Pray with my mind. He says, I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my mind. 
And so the first thing he wants to point out is that even in its private expression, the gift of tongues can't be your sole form of worship. That you have a brain that God has given you and that part of knowing God involves that brain. In fact, the great proclamation of what we were called to as human beings in the book of Deuteronomy is you shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We have to watch out for this idea that either says, hey, it doesn't really matter if Christianity is true or not. We can engage with God. Just check your brain at the door. Faith is something different. Faith is something other. In fact, faith is believing in something you know is not true. We've got to ignore that. We've got to recognize that's not the God of the Bible. That's not Christianity. But at the same time, we've got to watch out for this thing saying, yeah, the brain is great and all, and you can know God, but I can truly know God through the mysterious, through the things behind the veil, through the uh, incomprehensible. If you read carefully with your eyes open in the scriptures, God constantly proclaims that he's knowable. Not that you can know all things about God, not that you can comprehend him in his totality, but that you can know enough to really know him. And that's his desire. Not for you just to experience God. Not for you just to encounter something you don't understand, but to know him relationally. And so tongues can be an aspect of that in your private Christian life, but it can never be the totality. And then he says in this plays out as well when we gather together. Notice how he continues here in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? So here he pivots to when we're gathered together, and he says, you may very well stand up in church and pray a prayer of thanksgiving in a tongue, but no one in the room can say amen with you. Now, why is that matter? Okay, the word amen just literally means truth. Okay, it means let it be. When Jesus says in the Gospels, truly, truly, I say to you, in the original text, he literally says, amen, amen, I say to you. Okay? When we say amen, <clears throat> after a prayer, we become participants in the prayer. We take the prayer that was just prayed and we say, yes, let it be. Amen is ultimately an expression of faith. It says the things that have just been asked for, let them be the case. And so what he says here is if you pray in a tongue, anyone who doesn't understand the language, how can they become participants in your prayer? See, here's another place where we can easily go wrong in the modern world when we think about church. Paul sees church as participatory, not merely experience. Okay? That means that you don't just come on a Sunday to consume or to have a happening or to encounter the living God, but there's something for you to do. Now, that might be a strange thing to say when you're all, quote, passively listening and I'm actively talking, but there is a part for you to play and I'll give you a surprise. The Bible puts way more emphasis on the responsibility of the listener than even on the responsibility of the speaker. How often in Jesus' ministry did he say, all you have ears, let them hear? Hearing is an active participation. And even if it's just at the heart level, we might not be the type of church that shouts out amen while the preacher is preaching. Frankly, I'm okay with that. Uh, but at the heart level, you should be taking the truth as it's proclaimed and saying, yes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When the word of God is proclaimed, we say amen. 
And so Paul says that when we gather together, we should value the understandability of what's said. That's where the onus is. That's where the weight is. Because then we become participants. You see, witnessing someone experiencing God at church is not the same thing as participating in what God is doing through the church. That's the line that Paul wants the church in Corinth to cross. He doesn't want it to be an observation. I was thinking yesterday that a good way to go about these chapters, if I could start over and if I was a slightly different person, I wish I would have thrown a circus with a spiritual gift freak show. Because I think that's generally how we think of the spiritual gifts, as something that are strange and foreign, and we'd honest, if we were honest with ourselves, we'd like to just have the ability to pay a cheap admission and sit and watch somebody speak in tongues. Because it's that foreign, it's that different. The Corinthian church was tremendously familiar with the gift, but their understanding wasn't any better. They saw it as not even just something to watch other people to do, but to do in front of other people and say, look at me, I am a tongue speaker. I am near the living God. Watch as I become his vessel of the incomprehensible. And Paul's just saying, you know what? When we gather, even if it's a simple truth, it's better than tongues. When we gather, the comprehensible outweighs the incomprehensible, specifically because we become participants in the truth. Because we connect who God is with our belief in who God is, which is what we're called to as Christians. As it says in the book of Hebrews, very simply, without faith, it's impossible to please God. What does God want from you? He wants your amen. What does he want from you when we gather together? He wants you to participate in the proclamation and the belief of the truth of who God is. And we do that in all sorts of ways. This is not just limited to what we verbalize. When we, when we use our gifts of hospitality or the gifts of mercy, that's truth proclaiming. It says, you are created in the image of God and worthy of our care. It says, God is a God of love and he cares about your condition. When the gift of healing is used, all of these gifts are truth proclaiming. So can the gift of tongues be, as long as there's interpretation. Okay, and so he says, if you do speak in the gift of tongues and you're gathering with the church, pray for the interpretation. And I, I'm assuming here, because later when he's going to say, if you're gathering together and you speak in tongues, at least two or three and let there be an interpreter. But when he says it here, I actually think he's saying, pray for the interpretation and share that instead. He's not saying, give a gift in tongues and then sit down and pray and hope that, that God gives you the interpretation. He's saying, if you really want to benefit the church, Pray that God would help you express with your mind instead of the tongue. Okay? So, he says, how are they going to say the amen? He continues here in verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. This is what we saw last week. That the goal of the gifts when we gather as a church is to build up one another. To encourage one another. To edify one another. To strengthen the church. To serve one another. And he says that an aspect of how that works is that it's intelligible, that it's understood, okay? And so he continues here, and he says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Once again, if there's a truth here that doesn't seem common sense to us that we have to swallow, it's that one. Paul is tremendously grateful that not just does he have the gift of tongues, 
but he uses it more than even the crazy Corinthians, okay? We have to deal with that thanks. We have to be able to see this gift that seems so strange and so outlandish to us as a good gift. But, Paul continues, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Do you see how heavily he weights the difference between the two? Only five words. Jesus loves you, my friend, outweighs hours of tongues used in a public setting. Okay, what is he saying here? He's pointing out that the benefit for the church is in the understandable. It's in the comprehensible. Probably one of the ways the church in Corinth was feeling was that prophecy and teaching and all of that's fine for the uninitiated, for those who still needed instruction, for the simple-minded. But we and what they were valuing were these inner circle things. And I think we can do the same thing. Whenever you think to yourself, yeah, 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 I've heard this all before, I know all this, when are we gonna get to the good stuff? Trust me, there is more of God to know. Trust me, there are things yet to be understood and there really is a difference, like Paul talks about, between the fresh milk that we need as baby Christians and the meat of mature Christians. But, but that never means that the simple truths aren't to your benefit. So we need to be those who value even the simply stated truth. Why? Because it's really true. Because it's a truth that we need to know. Now the second area he turns to here is not just, not just how it impacts you or how it impacts the church, but how it impacts outsiders. And it seems, when we, when we try and fill in the blanks of what was going on in the church in Corinth, one of the reasons they greatly valued the gift of tongues was for its e evangelistic value, that it was impressive to outsiders, that when people came in and saw the gift of tongues, they'd think to themselves, whoa, God is real, God is present, I had no idea. That seems to be what Paul is um, answering here, and so notice what he says. He says in verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And so once again, he's saying you need to grow in your understanding, right? He says you should be children in evil. You should be completely innocent and unknown in doing evil things. And he says, but innocence as in a childlike knowledge that hasn't grown in understanding isn't ideal either. So he lays that out and he continues. And he says in verse 21, in the law it is written... By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, now what we're about to go through is one of the more difficult passages in 1 Corinthians. The reason is because Paul here quotes from Isaiah, and then he applies it, and he says, therefore tongues are not for believers, but for unbelievers, whereas prophecy is not for unbelievers, but believers. And then when he applies it, he seems to reverse it. And so he says, he says that tongues is for unbelievers, and then he says, but if an unbeliever comes, won't he think you're crazy? What is going on here, okay? The first thing that we have to understand is what Paul is doing with this quotation. If you just read it here, it's easy to misunderstand it, but he's speaking to a church whose primary scriptures is the Old Testament. 
who just like we can today can open up the book of Isaiah and read the context of this passage. He's using shorthand. He's writing a letter. He doesn't say, let's do a Bible study on Isaiah 28. He just references it so that they can look it over later. Here's what's going on in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah's job is to proclaim to Israel because of their lack of repentance that the Assyrian army is going to come in, sack Israel, and carry them away. Okay? That's what's going on broadly in the book. At this particular, particular juncture, Isaiah is saying, because you wouldn't listen to the prophets who spoke in your own language, God is going to send in a people, the Assyrians, who speak in a different language, and that's the way that God is going to speak to you. Okay? Now, answer me this. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing, right? It's bad for two reasons. One, it's because they wouldn't listen to the clear and comprehensible that this is now happening. And two, when it says foreign people are going to come and speak to you, that's war. That's destruction. That's slavery. That's judgment. That's his point here, is that tongues, as it's used by God, is most often, yes, a sign, but a negative one. And he says, you're in danger of doing the same thing. You're ignoring prophecy, the clear teaching and instruction of the word of God. You're ignoring the simple and understandable and overvaluing this where he says, we actually see a different emphasis. Now, maybe you notice that when he quotes this, he calls it the law, for the law says. Now, usually the word law refers to one of two things, either the law as it's recorded in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the commandments given to Israel, or the law as in the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, okay? Now, when he quotes here, he doesn't quote in the law. He uses this term in a broader sense to include the prophets. He uses it in the broader sense like we would say the Old Testament today. But it is interesting the consistency of the point that he's making. Okay, where's the first place where we see people speaking in a language that others don't understand? It's in the book of Genesis, right? In the book of Genesis, all these people are gathered together to build a tower unto the heavens, to make a stand against the proclamation of God, to spread out and fill the earth. They say, no, we're going to stay together, make a name for ourselves. They're building this tower, and God confuses their languages. Good or bad? Bad. It's confusion, right? Um, even in the law, and this is where Isaiah is coming from. Here's, here's just a, a sidebar to give you some benefit in reading the prophets. Starting with Isaiah, moving through the rest of the Old Testament, those are the prophets of Israel. You cannot understand them apart from the covenant in the book of Deuteronomy. You cannot understand them if you don't see that they're constantly referring to, pointing to, grounded in the things that were said in the book of Deuteronomy. And one of them was... If you do not repent, God will send a strange nation in among you that does not speak your language and take you out of the land. Okay? And so when Isaiah is making this point here, it's not a new thing. Okay? It's exactly as God designed it with the people of Israel. Okay? So that's the context of what's going on here. Now, maybe some of you are extremely biblical literate and you're already thinking about the day of Pentecost. I promise you we'll get there. But... That's the point that he's making. And so he says, to apply this in verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. What is he saying? He says the people of Israel heard strange tongues, not because they were good and solid believers in God, but because of their unbelief. 
That's where he grounds this, okay? So he says it's a sign for unbelievers, but it's a negative sign. It's a sign of judgment. Let me give the big principle here. If God is making himself incomprehensible, not a good thing, okay? If we've hardened ourselves to the clear reality of who God is, and we embrace instead the incomprehensible, or if we find ourselves in that place, we're moving in the wrong direction. And so he continues, though, and he says in verse... uh, Verse 22, tongues is not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, this is why this passage is confusing, because here he uses the word sign again. It's actually not in the Greek. It's just, it's just left off, but that doesn't mean he doesn't mean it. He doesn't say tongues is a sign while prophecy is. It's implied, okay? But it's clearly not used in the same way. He doesn't mean that prophecy is a negative sign but a positive one. And this is consistent with how the word sign is used throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's a sign of good things, sometimes it's a sign of bad things. What a sign actually is, is evidence of God's attitude. Okay? And so he says that the presence of prophecy in the congregation is a sign to believers of what? Of that they know the true and living God, like Isaiah himself says, right? That he actually speaks, that he's knowable, and that we know him. Now watch what he does as he applies this. He moves from who is this assigned to to how does it affect outsiders in both ones. How does tongues affect outsiders? How does prophecy? And this is what he says. He says, if therefore, verse 23, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? The first thing I want you to notice here is Paul assumes that when the church gathers, people who aren't part of the church will be there. He assumes that outsiders, that non-Christians, that those who are just visiting will be present in the church. Okay? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should be here. Jesus expects you. You're invited. There are things for you here today. And church, we have to watch out for this attitude that says the church and when we gather is just about us. Paul assumes here. And he says because of that, Because there will be people who don't know, because there will be people who don't understand, even more so, we need to make sure that everything we do is understandable. Not just to us who know, but to those who don't. And so he says, what will happen if there's speaking in tongues and an unbeliever comes from the outside? Won't they say you're out of your mind? You see, they might think that, look, this is miraculous, it's powerful, it's what God is doing. But is it any surprise to us today that somebody who's never heard of the gift of tongues would walk in and go, this is weird. I'm going to get out of here, right? He contrasts this with prophecy, and notice what he says. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What's the difference between those two things? Is tongues a false gift and prophecy a true gift? No. But prophecy is understandable to all. And he says, so an outsider comes and he hears the clear proclamation of what God has said. He hears instruction and truth. He hears just the simple explanation of Christianity and that convicts him of the reality of God. For those of you who are Christians, look back on your life. Look in the early days as you were exploring Christianity. Many of you can probably relate to this reality. Okay? When you're a new Christian, 
the simplest things of Christianity are mind-blowing. And you come to your other Christian friends and you say, did you know that? And you read a passage and they're like, yeah, everybody knows that, right? But to you, it's powerful, right? Because you didn't know and now you know. He points out here that there will be conviction, that the secrets of the heart will be revealed. Let me give you a surprising reality of how the scriptures work. It's not just something that you inspect, it's something that inspects you. That's why it says in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to cleave even between soul and spirit. Okay? The Bible is not just something we lay open, it's something that lays us bare, as Paul says here. And so we should value the reality of the God who reveals himself, not just a record of his revelation, but does it present tense as we're gathered, speaks to us today. Now, truly, honestly, we see this exact pattern played out on the day of Pentecost. If you're not familiar, in the book of Acts, Jesus has ascended to heaven and he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, I've got a mission for you, I've got a ministry for you, but first let me empower you for it. So they're waiting and they're praying, and on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus has died, on the day of Pentecost, they're all gathered in the upper room and there's this happening. And to be honest, it's relatively inexplicable. There's tongues of fire and a sound that's kind of like wind, and suddenly everybody is speaking in a different language and they go out into the streets. But the day of Pentecost is a huge Jewish festival. So there's people gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world who may speak Aramaic or may speak Hebrew, but their mother tongue is some other language. And they hear some of those people proclaiming the good works of God in their own language. And if you read closely in the book of Acts chapter 2, some of the people hear that going and going, whoa, isn't it a little early in the morning to be drunk? Right? That's their interpretation of the happening. It just seems weird. But the others are like, what's going on? These are clearly locals. How do they know my language? But that's as far as it gets. It's not until Peter stands up and begins to preach about who Jesus was, proclaim that they are responsible for his death, even though it was the foreordained plan of God, and that the promise that they're now seeing is for them and for their children. It says that they were cut to the heart and they asked him, what must we do to be saved? Okay. So the day of Pentecost is a perfect illustration of what Paul is saying here. People noticed the gift of tongues. Those who didn't understand the language thought it was crazy, just like Paul says here. Even the ones who did, all it did was garner a listening. It drew them in, but the truth clearly stated and proclaimed was still necessary. And what happened? I mean, read Peter's sermon. In one sense, it's really powerful. In another sense, it's tremendously simple. I mean, just to be honest, if we were to read it, it's two minutes long. And although that's probably a summary, it's, it's not like he gathered in the streets for an hour a crowd of strangers whatever he said he said briefly but it cut them to the heart and 3,000 people became Christians on those days okay see here's the thing Jesus himself is an expression of the reality that we're talking about if you want to know can God truly be known does God want to be known is God knowable there's no better place to look than Jesus Christ himself God condescended to become understandable. He took on flesh and blood and spoke the local language so that people could know him. 
the cross of Christ demonstrates who God is in his totality. You want to know that God is holy? He's so holy that he must judge sin, even on the shoulders of his own son. You want to know that God is loving? You look at the cross and you recognize that he bore that on your behalf. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, Paul says. You want to know that God is merciful? We recognize that that was our fate and he didn't give us what we deserved. The full palette of the character of God is demonstrated in the cross. And the problem is, God's view of being known is so important that he incarnated himself. He took on flesh. The gift of tongues used in this way, the overvaluing of the mysterious, making it merely personal experience instead of edification of the church, that de-incarnates the truth. It walks in the opposite direction of what Jesus has done. Whereas the simple truth, simply proclaimed without talent or skill or eloquence, is inherently incarnational because its goal is the same. God wants us to know him. He wants the outsider and the unbeliever to know him. He wants the visitor to walk in to know him. And we make God knowable when we incarnate it for them, when we use our gifts in a way that makes God known. Okay? Listen, if you're not a believer this morning, God desires for you to know him, not just to know the facts about him, not just to be able to pass the test that gets you into heaven, to be in relationship with the God who created you. And he's gone to great distance to doing that, constantly revealing himself and proclaiming himself. And then ultimately, as it says in the book of Hebrews, in past days, in various ways, God has revealed himself. But in these last days, he has revealed himself totally in his son. And for us as a church, we need to walk in that same concept, in that same mindset. We don't want to be impressive. We want to be understood. We don't want to be seen. We want to show the God who is there. We want to be the body of Christ who makes the ministry of Jesus in today's world as we gather together visible and tangible. Let's pray. God, I want to just proclaim again that you are more than we can understand that there are the dark things of God that cannot be known. That there is this broad reality that you are greater than us. But at the same time, you have condescended, you have stooped down, you have said, I really want you to know me. Let me put it in words that you can understand. And you took on yourself flesh and blood like we have, vocal cords like we have, a language like we have to speak so that we could truly know. I pray, God, that we would not become too smart for the simple truths, and that we would not pursue the unknown, the mysterious, and the experiential, and settle for an encounter with things we don't understand when what you've called us to is a relationship where we really know you. I pray that we would recognize that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so the word of God would ever be on our lips for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our family, for the sake of those who don't know you. I pray, God, that we would communicate your truth constantly to one another. 
that we would, as it says in the book of Ephesians, speak the truth in love to one another and grow into the maturity of the body of Christ. God, thank you that you are knowable. And not just because we pursue you and those who want to will find you, but knowable because you came after us. That we were the ones lost and you came and found us. I ask God that we would just stand on that this morning, that we would rejoice in that, that we would lean into that, and that we would know the God who says, know me. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Amen. As we